Hello and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work and their relationship to books, libraries and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library of its kind in the UK and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. Sarah Brooks is a writer currently living in Leeds. She attended the Clarion West Writers Workshop in 2012 and has had stories published in magazines including Interzone, Strange Horizons and Strix. She won the 2017 Bear Fiction Short Story Prize, the Walter Swans Short Story Prize in 2017-18 to and the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize in 2019. Sarah works in East Asian Studies and she helps run the Leeds Centre for New Chinese Writing. She's currently working on her first novel, The Cautious Traveller's Guide to the Wastelands, and is co-editor of Samovar, a bilingual online magazine of translated speculative fiction. Hello, Sarah, welcome. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Um, So, obviously, I want to talk about your upcoming novel, The Cautious Traveller's Guide to the Wastelands, um, in a bit, but I first want to ask you kind of about your how you got into writing um so were you always a writer from a young age or was it something that came later in life what was your journey into writing like yeah well I mean I was always a big reader so my whole family are, are huge readers and so I think it that you know that came first and mm. and the sort of things they got me into as well were um the sort of fantasy and you know this kind of thing the hobbit you know yeah. was a really um formative reading experience um and I think actually from a very young age when I, I read the hobbit I remember thinking this is this is what I want to do mm. um and so have remained very um, loyal to my my sort of obsessions with with fantasy um, and yeah so I also my I mean, my mum got me into to reading things like Agatha Christie I think as the first sort of grown-up books mm. I suppose and and then my dad more on the, the sort of fantasy side you know Isaac Asimov David Eddings um, this kind of thing so my first forays into writing were were really bad copies of, <laughs> of that kind of thing it's really terrible epic fantasy um with with lots of dragons and and unicorns and Mm. and this kind of thing um and then I suppose you know bad angsty teenage poetry I moved into from then as so many people do um (laughs) But, but when I ended up going to, to university and starting work, I sort of stopped writing so much, really. Um, just, just other bits of life got in the way. And then really started again um, when I was in... Um, I started working in China. I was in Beijing. And, and I think a bit homesick, mm. um, really and started writing a novel set in Yorkshire, I think as a way of, um, of trying to get home. Yeah. And then, um, and so sort of, you know, really, really started from there. Um, and then when I finally did move home a few years later, um, I ended up going to a, writer, a creative writing um, class at the Bowery um, coffee shop and mm. gallery in Headingley and and it was just once a week um, but it was a really lovely way of, of just sort of getting you know meeting other people who liked writing and, mm. um, and just just sort of getting into it um, a little bit yeah so so from there then you know, just sort of discovered all the the writing that goes on in Leeds really so I joined the Leeds Writers Circle 
that has been really important um, and is, I think, the longest running writing circle in the country. Oh. I think there's there's some some discussion over as to when it started. Is it 1928 or 1929? But it has been been running continuously since then, and it's yeah. still going strong. That's really interesting. I'd heard of it, but I didn't I didn't know that was the case. It's a really really brilliant group, and and I think again just meeting other people who yeah. who like writing was so important because I just been sort of doing it by myself secretly really yeah. um, before this so so that was I think just just sort of every week or every couple of weeks going to these meetings and listening to other people talk about their writing um, you know was, was re- really encouraged me to to carry on and to do my own so mm. so that was been um, the sort of key thing really and then that you know, sort of opened up all these other doors yeah. um, to all the writing, the huge numbers actually of writing things that go on in Leeds, like yeah. the Northern Short Story Festival and Northern Short Story Academy um, and all these kind of things. Mm. And there's, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you say that writing is, initially it was kind of a, a way of wanting to get back home and feeling, I, I feel like fantasy has that, um, kind of comfort element a lot, doesn't it, as a genre? Even though it's it's crazy and um, uh, uh, not based in reality hardly at all, even uh, you kind of have that element of wanting to be kind of comforted um, by an imaginary world. But it's interesting that you say that because I I was when I was researching um, this podcast, I I saw an interview where you'd said that the idea for the the Cautious Traveller's Guide came from a real trip that you mm. took on the Trans-Siberian Railway. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that and kind of then also the genesis of the idea of this this novel, which started, I think you were saying, as a short story um, and then kind of grew. Yeah, so um, I went on the Trans-Siberian Express um, 20 years ago now. So I'd been studying, I was studying Chinese mm-hmm. and we just had a year um, studying in Beijing and decided fairly randomly to to come home overland so so to, to come all the way from from Beijing to back back home and um, so the Trans-Siberian Express obviously was was part of that so we ended up with a couple of friends we went to Mongolia first um, and had a couple of amazing weeks mm. there and then took the train straight from Ulaanbaatar um, to Moscow and at the time we decided just to, to take take the whole um, to go go straight so go for the whole I think it was five days um, because we didn't have enough money to be able to to, um, to break the trip up which I think is the best the best thing to do but it was cheaper if you just got on the train and, mm. and stayed on it um, so it was absolutely amazing it was just one of those those trips that I, mean, I think when you're you know 20 these these kind of trips are, are so yeah. important and yeah there was um in the cabin there was us and and one poor Chinese man who was just horrified clearly to be spending this <laughs> five days with these three <laughs> three British girls um very much um but everybody else on the train almost was um was from Mongolia mm-hmm. um and were very very friendly and insistent on feeding us vodka um which we didn't didn't really like but of course drank anyway yeah um and a lot of the uh, the travelers were were going to Moscow to sell sell goods, um, which meant that at every stop they sort of jumped out of the train and put all their their stuff, their the, the clothes or the um, you know quilts and things out on the 
um, platform to, to sell. And then when the train was set off again, they sort of, you know, hopped back on the train. Um, and all these things were kind of hidden in the, um, in the walls and in the different compartments with mm. the help of the train guide, the train guard. Um, so it was quite an interesting, you yeah. know, ex- experience. And, and just being, you know, traveling, for, for so many days at a yeah. time um, and you know and, and sort of watching the the continent go by really was was amazing and and one particular point I remember was we'd gone to the um, the, the dining car to to sort of look look for the marker that that marked the the change from Asia to Europe it's a very unimpressive small white stone basically which marks it um, but by the time we got there all the the Mongolians um, were there already and they pushed all the tables and chairs back and there was music and they were dancing and drinking and and got us involved as well um, so we we you know that was how we we sort of crossed mm. crossed from Asia to Europe um, you know which seemed at the end of this this year studying abroad we, we felt was a, a kind of um, appropriately weird and interesting yeah. way to do it and yeah and so and then you know we got back home and and things carried on and I didn't really think about using this in a story um, until quite a few years later, let's say when I'd started writing again, and I ended up going to um, Clarion West, it's called, which is a workshop in Seattle, in mm-hmm. America, um, for science fiction and fantasy writers. And I was really lucky to, to get to go. It's a six-week workshop and you have to write a story a week Mm. um so I had to come up I foolishly hadn't decided or hadn't really thought about what I was going to write beforehand so so I had to come up with something um quickly and and just thought about this this trip yeah um and so one of the stories I wrote for that workshop was was called The Cautious Travellers Guide to the Wastelands um and yeah and so that was the short story Actually, that week was taught by George R. R. Martin, um, oh which was an amazing experience. I mean, every week had brilliant teachers um, yeah. in, taking taking the, <gasps> wow. the class, and and he was he was really wonderful, although quite terrifying in some ways. Yeah. He, um, <laughs> I think it was only meant to be a few hours every morning that he that the teacher would would go through your work, mm. or through the, the everybody in the the class, the sort of seventeen of us, um, and it was meant to finish at twelve, I think. And he just he'd read them so carefully, and he had so much to say about all of these stories. He went through you know page by page that that we ended up having to come back after lunch and and go yeah. on through the afternoon because he was just really engaged yeah. with the stories and and had a lot of, of criticism but you know really um constructive criticism so he pulled the part the, the story apart but um but also gave lots of, of good ideas yeah so yes and then the story was published in interzone magazine mm-hmm. um which is science fiction and fantasy magazine that i think has a leeds connection actually okay i, I think was that. yeah i think originally um it was possibly it was based out of leeds and yes so it's published and I was um really excited but then thought oh well it's it's done um but it wasn't done (laughs) the story just just kept going um so then it was it was uh you submitted it for the Lucy Cavendish prize Mm. but it's I mean it's it's interesting that you say that it came from this kind of initial journey because I can so see we'll talk a bit about the strangeness later but Mm. I can so see how traveling 
um, that kind of journey, especially when you're quite young, has your mind wanders. And I remember like a very formative interrading trip that I went on when I was 18. And I also, at the time, I was probably writing a lot of very bad teenage poetry and reading like Crime and Punishment. And I, I so remember just everything seemed so strange and interesting. And I was so kind of my imagina- imagination was really on fire. So yeah, it's that's really cool that it came from that kind of experience. Mm. But anyway, so... <laughs> After it was published in Interzone, mm. is it? Yeah. Then it was uh, you submitted it for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize, um, which is a prize for female novelists over twenty-one, mm-hmm. and it's the first you submit the first chapters of a novel, an unfinished novel, um, and then it won. <laughs> so congratulations! <laughs> um, and then I, I kind of also, I guess, what was that experience like? But also, how important do you think kind of prizes and prize culture? Is, import, um, is for writers when they're kind of first starting out or even when they're kind of in the mid-careers. Mm. What, do you, what, do your, what are your thoughts about that, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it was obviously, for, for me, it was a really, I mean, it was a really life-changing experience, actually, because I met my agent through mm. that. Um, so everybody who was shortlisted got to, to talk to the, the agent who was part of the judging panel. And um, yeah, I, and it, for sort of a, a critique of your first first few chapters. And we met up and she, she offered, offered representation, which was uh, amazing, especially considering that the, the novel wasn't finished. Mm. I think normally you would, you would wait to, before sending off to an agent, you would, you know, you'd have a really completed sort of more polished manuscript. Um, but Nell, so Nell Andrew, um, is is a very sort of editorial agent, so she's she's quite happy, quite keen on, on taking people on and working with them mm. to to polish the the manuscript. So so that's what happened. So so for me that that you know experience was obviously so important. But it was a really great experience as well. I mean the the Lucy Cavendish I thought was just a very nice supportive. Um, competition mm. so from being long listed and then short listed you know everybody involved was was really encouraging and friendly and all of us on the short list we, we have a what's we all met um, at the, the sort of the prize giving um, event and now we have a, a whatsapp group mm. you know and we can share share what's going on with our you know with our novels and mm. and having that you know an, another support group I think again is is lovely so yeah. so that was good it feels like um kind of writing writerly communities and networks of people are really kind of have been really important for you in your mm. writing career which is so nice I think there's often a misconception that writing is quite a solitary act and and um you know you you write a manuscript <laughs> alone and then it's published and then um but actually it's a lot of communities and support and feedback and that kind of thing is so I think the more and more I talk to writers that it comes across as um, kind of one of the most important aspects of it in a way absolutely yeah and because we do spend so much time alone in our room with our laptop <laughs> that I think you need that 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 community yeah um you know support but also to to help you get better yeah really and so yeah and to get back to your question about the the benefit of competitions I think that definitely um can be part of it that mm. you can you know you feel that you are engaging with a, a broader community um, which is really important. And yeah, I mean, I think in general competitions, it, it depends so 
much on on you and and what you want. Um, I think it's definitely not absolutely um, necessary to to enter, but it can be, as I say, an encouragement. Um, it can really lead to to sort of genuine benefits like mm. meeting agents. And you don't have to win. I mean, being longlisted, being shortlisted, can often lead to to this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say I think there's a lot of so many competitions out there. It can be expensive entering too many so so being careful about what you do enter the yeah. lucy cavendish i do think is 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 great and it's not not hugely expensive mm. um but yes it's it sort of really depends on you and it can be you know it can be disheartening i think if you aren't if you aren't getting anywhere it's there's, there's such an element of, of luck and it can yeah. just depend on who's reading who's judging yeah so, but i and i yeah. suppose it's the, the process itself or or you kind of improve just through doing it and through having a reason and a deadline and a kind of you know the specs to what to write to in a way um, yes i mean deadlines for me i think I, if i don't have deadlines i don't get anything done yeah, yeah um and i remember in fact i entered the lucy cavendish with five minutes to spare the deadline was at midday and at 11 55 wow. i got it in having had all you know lots of sort of oh i can't do it in time oh i won't bother and then did um I bet you're so, so pleased yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so so, you know, I'm always very last minute, but I do think that, that, that you know, sort of forcing yourself to, yeah. to get this done, it's no, I'm a good also thing. <laughs> very, very deadline driven. <laughs> it's hard not to be any other way, I think. I know. I mean, um, I always, I, I sort of always tell my students, oh, you know, really try and get things done in plenty of time. Don't mm. just wait for the deadline. And I really don't follow my own advice. But then at all. the deadline approaches and you find yourself doing things and you're like, oh, why didn't I start this before? I'd I love this. And I wish I had more time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I think part of what really excited me about the first section of, of the Cautious Traveller's Guide to the Wastelands is that you seem to be pulling from so many genres and you've mm. already um, kind of mentioned, I guess, Agatha Christie, that kind of murder mystery mm. element and fantasy and science fiction. Um, and at the beginning of the novel, you could almost be setting up a murder mystery or a kind of murder on the Orient Express style story. Um, but you gradually introduce this strangeness and eeriness that comes from this the wasteland, which is the kind of setting of the novel. Um, and the reader realises it's a whole other type of narr narrative. Um, and I kept thinking of Stalker, mm. um, where you don't ever see anything that weird, but there's the, the zone, the, the kind of the Russian uh, film. Um, it's this threatening presence that you don't mm. ever see. Um, and then there's a suggestion of these kind of mythological elements and monsters and rituals. Um, that kind of remind me of science fiction, but also folk tales um, or maybe even fairy tales. So I suppose that being said, what was your biggest influence? Uh, what were the biggest influences for this book in terms of genre um, mm. or maybe writers or yeah, anything really that kind of inspired this blending of everything, uh, all these genres in this book? Mm. I mean, some of it came from my my PhD, actually. It was on um, classical, was on monstrosity mm -hmm. in 17th century Chinese ghost stories. So always been, been wow. very, very into, <laughs> into monsters. As I said, I am, yes, loyal to my obsessions um, since being quite small. So I'd done, um, during my PhD, I was doing a lot of reading about, um, you know, various 
um, kind of attitudes to the monstrous and representations of mm. of the monstrous, um, and also the the idea that I think comes out that comes out in a lot of the Chinese stories of the monstrous not necessarily being something horrifying mm. all the time, um, of change not being not being as terrifying as it can be in you know European literature, for example, mm. um, but actually being as a sort of you know a part of the as much a part of the natural world as as the human. So I was you know, really thinking a lot about these ideas. Um, and, but that, of course, and the reason I did my PhD on monstrosity um, was because that's the sort of thing I, I like reading as mm. well. Um, so I've never seen Stalker, actually, or the okay. book is based on, but I should. But um, I like Jeff Vandermeer a lot. I don't, I don't know. know if you've um, if read any of his, but his Annihilation trilogy. Oh, I think. Is there, was there a film, There's a film made of as that well? Recently. Yes. yes, it's the same kind of the same idea, I think. Yeah. Yes, the sort of the you know the landscape turning strange. Yeah. So so I I love I really love his work. Um, and yeah. Yeah, and then also, I suppose, so, so all, all kinds of, of sort of fantasy fiction, but I also, um, I really like film and, and teach mm. um, Chinese cinema at the university as well, but enjoy East Asian cinema. And I think um, the Studio Ghibli films mm. from Japan, I really love, and they were quite a big influence as well in their... Um, representation again of of sort of nature and of our you know different attitudes to mm. to nature and it's a lot of the films are very strange and and these these weird things happen but they're they're not threatening no yeah. no and the and the way that the characters react to them i think is is really fascinating and mm. isn't necessarily um with, with fear so so that was another big influence that's really interesting and also i suppose you have this because it's set on this the Trans-Siberian mm. Railway. You have this kind of East meets West culture melding. Did you mm. try and include those different kind of attitudes to the strange within the story, or? Yeah, I think partly, definitely, actually. Um, the, the the characters, there's, there's three main characters who are from China, Russia mm. and um, England and set in an alternate 19th century. So I think especially my my character from England, he's um, uh, a scientist, quite sort of old fashioned, mm. I suppose, type of scientist. And and his attitude to um, to the, the landscape and, and to nature, this sort of changing landscape is is very much more uh you know he wants to to sort of take it and study it and, mm. and control it i mm. suppose um and some of the other characters attitudes are are, are quite different yeah. so i did want to explore that that different attitude and i suppose also i mean obviously i've only read the first part of it so i don't know how much of an element the, the kind of murder mystery types mm. uh, narrative plays i don't know how big a part of it is but actually also that seems in a way that genre of writing seems a bit like kind of a way of dealing with strangeness or scariness mm. or the unknown as well isn't it that's kind of our our interest in those narratives finding out what happened and having a almost having a kind of definitive neat and tidy wrapped up ending mm. um whereas i suppose maybe it sounds like these these chinese fairy tales and monsters it's a bit the relationship with the strange or the threatening is a bit less kind of clear cut and um, black and white, maybe. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That it's they're they've seen as or the the strange. I think certainly in Chinese tradition is seen as as much more part of the mm. world, um, and so so people's attitudes to it. They can you know it can still be something terrifying. And there's there's plenty of the the 17th century ghost stories that I looked at that were are quite scary. But also there's lots of them that are you know um, relationships or romance even between mm. the the human and the supernatural. So yeah. so that kind of thing. So you have all of these kind of uh, genres and elements blending together. I wonder, I've written here, are there any genres you've never write? Um, <laughs> and also, are there any genres you've never read? Um, I mean, I do. It's funny, actually, I have tried to write realist fiction. Mm. I've really tried, um, but I just can't seem to do it. Every time I start writing a story, you know, the strange intrudes somehow. So yeah. I suppose just straight up realism, I... No, quite like to. Um, I might. I might never write. Um, and crime as well. I mean, I read lots of crime. I love a love a good murder. Um, but I think I think the plotting, the intricate plotting involved yeah. in writing a crime novel, I just think might make my head explode. Um, I've had difficulty enough with it um, for yeah. this novel, so probably wouldn't do that. Um, but I think I read. I read pretty much anything. I think mm. I'm not sure there's any any genre that I I never read. So. It's really interesting that you say that you don't. I mean, I suppose it makes sense that the the strange always creeps in. But actually, I like how subtle the elements of strangeness are. Mm. At first, in um, in this kind of the beginning of this novel, it takes a while for things to get kind of weird, and mm. it takes a while for you to realise that actually this isn't just a kind of uh, yeah, a realist narrative. It's actually set in a kind of alternate re- universe. And actually, I read a piece of writing that you did for Strix called The Dragons of England, um, which I loved, which is amazing, <laughs> which is this, it's kind of a, a is it prose poem? Yeah. Um, short story <laughs> type um, piece of writing about um, a relationship and then the woman is a dragon, kind of, or it's called, yeah, I it's, I don't want to spoil it if, if, if listeners haven't read it, but it's really fantastic. And again, that is, it's quite realist, but then has these elements of strangeness slowly brought in, and it's quite humorous in a way. Mm. I really, I loved it so much. Um, so I suppose my question is, what draws you to these kind of strange elements? And then do you think that less is always more when you're writing science fiction? Or, I don't know, if for you maybe that's kind of your route into it, it's these kind mm. of subtly strange moments. Yeah, I mean, I think it maybe goes back to what you were saying earlier about why why we like reading reading this this kind of thing, and maybe it's partly a sort of a way of of making sense of the world, which seems strange mm. anyway. Um, and and I think as well that it's it's perhaps a kind of greediness. I think the you know the real world it isn't enough. Just just what we what we can see. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's always maybe that 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 desire to to kind of see more or to explore more so so maybe that's why I feel that I always want want these these elements of the strange um and quite like um again stories that are are not just completely fantastical but are grounded in reality yeah um, but I think often like the 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 idea of the uncanny valley right the mm. kind of the more the the closer you get to almost looking human, the weirder and more disconcerting it, it is. Or almost the weird, the closer you are to almost being realistic, 
the weirder it, those strange elements seem. Exactly, yes. When you're in a world that's already strange and you know it's a different world or a different planet, you know, you're... It sort of think, oh, okay, well, well, that's to be expected. But when it's it's our world, but it's the you know the familiar turned strange, mm. as you say, I think is is very it's, it is unsettling, yeah. um, but also just just really fascinating. Yeah, because um, that is, and that's why it reminded me of of Stalker, the film, a bit because mm. it is it's yeah it is that kind of very almost at first not noticeable weirdness that's really kind of sets your teeth on edge, but in, in a really kind of enjoyable way to read. Yes, <laughs> I certainly like having my teeth, my teeth set on edge. Um, yes, and being being unsettled. Um, but as to whether whether less is more always, I don't know. I mean, I think not not for my reading. I, mm. I, I do I do like like books where more is more. <laughs> you know, some of the the big epic fantasy um, books. I love people like Robin Hobb, mm. um, who writes writes fantastic secondary world fantasy, or mm. China Mieville, who who basically just throws everything he has all these crazy ideas onto the page um so so I do I do like that but I think in in my own writing and and in, in other reading I do like this this feeling feeling grounded but then unsettled yeah mm. so does um I, go, I suppose another way into that strangeness is is myth maybe mm. I don't know if that plays a, a part in your work I feel like it's maybe hinted at but um and and obviously you kind of work with Chinese myth and story mm. so do you think that to your writing at all um I think so I mean I think just this interest in speculative fiction I think myth myth can be you know be a part of that um and I teach in the university I teach on a, a world literature module and and teach a, a lecture on on myth and and talk quite a lot about how how these big stories big mythical stories that we have you know feed into other stories mm. um you know how they change over time and over different cultures and you know our sort of our popular culture is 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 sort of fed by by myth really mm. so so i do think that's still um definitely a part of it and and the fact that myth is to do with storytelling mm. um and and i do you know really want that to be part of the novel um and it's perhaps a useful ideas about myth is perhaps a useful framework in some ways for this particular story because it's an alternate history mm. um so it's set in, a, in an alternate version of the 19th century where there's this this one big change um, the, the landscape becoming unsafe, the landscape of, of Siberia becoming unsafe for human habitation. So the only way through is is on this this armored train, mm. um, and the characters having to come to terms with with what's happened. Um, and so it's about you know, telling stories and how how they tell themselves stories about yeah. what's what's happened. And and the novel's about a, a book as well. I mean the the. The, the Cautious Traveller's Guide is a book within the book. Um, and I wanted this itself, this, this guidebook, to have become kind of mythologised mm. and its writer. Um, so, so that's part of the story as yeah. well. That's really interesting and not something that I considered before that by, because, I, you know, myth is so almost like a kind of second language that we all mm. kind of implicitly understand, even if it's not spoken... Um, that creating a myth in an alternate world is kind of a shorthand for um, creating those values or, or making a reader understand the values of that world mm. um, without kind of being explicit about it. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a, that's a much better way of putting it, actually. I'm going well, to remember that. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that before. It's really interesting. One of the really fascinating elements of the book, I think, is this, this cultural melding between the Chinese and Russian cultures on the train. 
I've talked a bit about it before, um, but I know that you have lived and worked not only in China, but in Japan and Italy as well. Um, and you co-edit Samovar, am I saying that mm. right? Which is a bilingual online magazine of translated speculative fiction. So I suppose, can you tell me about, about your own experience with these this kind of in-between cultures, cultural mm. melding? Um, and then what is it that draws you specifically to that? What kind of, what do you like about working or writing those mm. kind of narratives that explore that? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's partly, it's, it's partly curiosity and this, this sort of greediness, really, to see mm. as much as possible. Um, and I, I, yeah, I've been very lucky to, to, to live abroad, um, to work in these different places. And, and I think the... I think that experience of living abroad, you know, really changes the way that you see your own country and that you see where you are at that particular place. Um, so I, I started off doing doing Chinese studies and I'd lived in China and then went to Japan straight after graduating. And and so, of course, you know, experienced Japan through the lens of, mm. of what I'd learned of China and of, of Chinese language, you know, and then then kind of starting to learn Japanese. So I learned it in a very different way to mm. people, I think, who were who were learning that first. Um, so so I think that, you know, that way of thinking is is just it's a really good thing, actually. Um, and I realize how, how lucky I've been to, to live in these different places, but I think they're just books and stories from from elsewhere as well can you know can also give us some of that experience can mm. can open those doors um and and to sort of to try and, and understand these different ways of you know living and thinking um and and different yeah cultural traditions and myths and 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 stories yeah and i suppose i mean you've you've you have just slightly answered this question <laughs> but why why is it important for us to expand our reading outside of our own language and what can we gain from opening up our minds slash libraries to literature from other countries yeah i mean i think you know as they say every all reading is is it's, it's acts of empathy right it helps mm. us empathize and understand and so i think that is really important for to for us to to get outside our comfort zone as well and and to see what else is 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 out there and I mean, as a country, I think we don't have a huge amount of translated fiction compared to, to other countries, but, but getting more, mm. I think, actually. And, and there's all sorts of, I think there's, there's a real movement at the moment to, to, to translate more and to, to put more emphasis on mm. translation and on the translator as well. Yeah. Um, there's this movement to sort of to name the translator on books because quite often they're, they're not. Mm. Um, so, so this you know, I think I think reading, you know, taking taking advantage of, of all these this this movement is is really important. Um, and in the north as well, I mean, think people like Tilted Axis Press and mm. Comma Press, mm -hmm. I think, are are publishing more and more translations. Comma Press looks at, um, at short stories. So so having you know, taking these opportunities to, to read outside your, your you know our own culture and language can just yeah just just open our minds really yeah. as as readers um but i think as writers as well it's it's important to to be able to experience you know, different narrative traditions mm. that we we get very um pulled into a certain um a sort of certain narrative structure or expectations yeah. in you know english language literature that 
that we, we kind of close our minds to, to these other traditions. Yeah, and, no, and I think right. reading reading can be really great to, to see how stories can work in different ways. Yeah, no, we, you're right. We had really recently actually a, a poetry and translation event here and it was um, two translators and then the poet who he read his works in French and then they translated them in English. And then he talks about kind of... Um, which, I mean, it was amazing to have both of them and to have the, the poet and then also the translators have their kind of, put their different kind of spoken emphasis mm. on the poems. But then also to hear about his history and all the kind of background and cultural history that went into um, writing those was so fascinating. And a really, a, a, it was a really interesting talk, I think. It made yeah. me think a lot. But I think, you know, poetry in translation is kind of more... I'm, yeah, see more and more of it around, I think, which is really fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I know there's the sort of the, the idea, oh, well, you can't, you can't translate poetry or, or whatever. Yeah. You're losing something by, by reading. But I think that whole process is so interesting to think about. And actually, yeah. in a way, I think it makes you, um, you, you kind of get more out of it in a way because you are forced to do the work of mm. the poet and the translator and really deeply think about the meaning more. I think and of um, I know Comma Press have this a book of it's a rock plus a hundred and mm. if you it's like yeah. speculative fiction of uh, Iraq writers imagining what their country will look like a hundred years in the future, which is really cool. So that's science fiction in translation <laughs> exactly, which which is absolutely great and and they've done some some ones and um, some Chinese as well. The Book of Shanghai yeah. is, is really good. That's got some sort of horror almost and, and science fiction in it. So yes, so I, I do I do think it is really important and but also to, to you know to know that we are reading a translation and mm. so we're we're seeing hybrid form. You know, mm. it's the it's the the translator and the writer together. Mm. I'm thinking about kind of what is lost in there and then what is also of gained yeah it's mm. so interesting and and i think obviously one element of that is is language on a technical level mm. and you obviously speak chinese and there's the in the book there's a the creole that they speak on the train which mm. is you call rail how um it's the language of the train um so i suppose as a writer and as an editor of translated fiction what interests you specifically about language as it travels from one culture to another and did that kind of play a part in in the writing process for this book or or less so yeah I mean I've thought a lot about it because of, of trying to to sort of think about how to what they would talk on on a train mm. um, on, on this train because it's um the the, the Trans-Siberian Company in the novel is is sort of run by Russia and China and so there's this this sort of melding and they use a lot of English as well as a kind of neutral language so I've tried and and I think not sure how successfully at the moment to um to be able to to recreate this on the page I yeah. think it's very difficult actually to um so it's more of a I'm hoping that people will just imagine what yeah. it might sound like um but of a, a sort of a mix of of the different different languages um, and again I think there's really you know interesting work being done at the moment um, writers who are using more um, of their own language they're writing in English but but using more of their own language and not translating it necessarily mm. or even putting it in italics but but just having it there on the page so that you are having a, a different experience and even if you're not understanding every word mm. um, you know it's I think it is a way of, of thinking about language mm. and of different experiences of language 
So, but I do think it's very, I certainly find it difficult to, to you know, to put on the page. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, really, really want to, want to, to think more about it. And, and again, going back to translators, I think the a reason for, for, for reading translated fiction is because the translator themselves has already spent this time mm. really thinking about um, how language works, how it moves mm. from one to another. What's the, so what's the editing process like for, for um, Samovar? Is that my saying that? Yes, yes, yes yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, sure about it. Yes, so so it is, I mean, it's quite a difficult editing process in some ways because some of the, the stories we've published, we haven't, we don't speak the mm. language. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, the Samovar is a bilingual magazine, so it's an online magazine, and we publish the, um, original language and the translation so you can you can read read both or if you don't read the original you can you can just see what it what it looks like on the Mm. page um but yes obviously that means the editing process is quite difficult and we have to have you know get quite a lot of of help for it and and really involve the writer and translator Mm. um a lot so but i think it's really worth being able to see you see both languages together even if you're not understanding yeah it's not something you, you you read um because because i think that that, that experience of seeing it on the page is, is important. Yeah, absolutely. And you're the deputy director of the Leeds Centre for New Chinese Writing, mm. whose aim is to foster closer links and dialogue and to help promote contemporary Chinese writing in the English-speaking world. So can you tell me a bit about that work um, and, and what that involves? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so this was it was set up by um, my colleague, uh, Professor Francis Waitman at the University of Leeds, um, set up as a project in 2014, um, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and has grown since then into, into what we call the, the centre. Um, and, and though it's run through the university, one thing we've always wanted um, from this project is that for, for us as, as academics to, to sort of get out of just, you know, literature just being in the classroom or mm. literature as, mm. um, you know, as part of our own research. So both Francis and I research Chinese fiction. Um, but actually we we realized that we didn't know very much about really how it gets out to readers so so the practicalities of the process of writing and translation and then publishing and marketing um and and this whole field around Mm. it i think academics are often a little bit um you know we get sort of tunnel vision in you know in the the sort of tearing sort of analyzing it rather than understanding how it gets out there um so yes we wanted to be able to bring these different parts of the field together and to bring them together with readers as well, um, as its, its key aim is to bring Chinese writing, especially new, newer Chinese writing and English translation to, to new audiences mm. who might not otherwise read it. Um, and I think maybe one of the problems with trying to, to broaden our reading horizons is it's, it's just kind of quite bewildering, really, to know mm. where to start yeah. with something like Chinese literature. Um, so we wanted the centre to be able to help people navigate the publishing scene so we've got a book club, an author of the month, where we have a short story in both in the original Chinese and the English translation, mm-hmm. um, along with an introduction to the author and their translator, so people can can see what's what's out there. Um, and we also run events where we invite authors and translators to Leeds. And in fact, hopefully, we're having a, um, a couple of events here, the Leeds wow. Library um, in autumn. We're trying to, to arrange that at the moment. That's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a book review network as well, where people can sign up um, to get books in translation and write reviews for us that we put on the website. And then hopefully these reviews, you know, mm. 
all together will, will be a way of helping people, you know, read, read what their, um, you know, read what their, their thoughts are and, and help them again to sort of navigate this, this sort of slightly confusing um, field. Um, and then finally, we've got a translation competition mm -hmm. every year and we've just launched um, a new journal, which is um, looking at having more sort of academic articles as yeah. well as interviews and, and things like that. Yeah. So, so lots wow. going on. That sounds um, amazing. Yeah, so so I should, I should say as well, uh, what's our website called? Uh, we're writing Chinese at leads.ac.uk. So yeah. you can find us. Amazing. And that sounds like a perfect way for someone to get into reading kind of more contemporary Chinese writing, I suppose, because that is exactly. often the hardest, actually, to find yes. out what's kind of current and, and good. And um, I mean, it's always easy to find the classics, I guess. Yeah. But for those people who have not ever dabbled in Chinese writing before, mm. are there any classics or, or, or anything really that you would recommend as kind of a starting point? Yeah, so I mean, I would definitely say look at look at our website and the book club. Um, I mean, some of my favourite authors that we've we've featured and that I think would be really good a good place for people to start. Um, there's an author called Yen Ge, um, Y A N G E. She's a very a very young writer, um, and and her she's done short stories and books translated either by Nikki Harmon or um, Jeremy Tiang. Mm -hmm. um, she's just really really sort of fun and lively. Um, her book. Uh, Strange Beasts of China mm -hmm. has has been really popular recently, so I think she's great. Um, Dorothy Che, so Che is T S E from um, Hong Kong, writes sort of weird, um, weird, strange short stories mm. that I think are, are really fascinating. So if you like the uncanny or the strange, she's I would definitely have to write that down. Yeah, that <laughs> she's right definitely someone to look at. And again, her translators. Um, are Nikki Harmon and Natasha Bruce as well has, has translated Dorothy's first novel into English which is coming out with Fitzcarraldo Press I think in the Those spring blue ones. yes beautiful, yeah beautiful so, covers, so very yeah. excited about that um, if you want I mean short stories I do think are, are a good way in and again sort of on the speculative science fiction side there's a new um, collection of writer of stories called The Way Spring Arrives, mm -hmm. which are speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, ghost stories. Um, she's just been published by Tor, um, edited by Regina Kanyu Wang and Yu Chen. And I think that's a really good collection. Mm. So a good a good way for, for people to, you know, a good start and to see see, you know, what yeah. kind of writers are out there. Um, and I should as well mention for the classical um, Pu Songling um, is is the who I wrote my my PhD on. So this oh, is the 17th okay, yeah. century ghost stories yeah. that are I think brilliant. They're about fox spirits and ghosts and giant scorpions and and other weird things. And um, they're very short stories, but but really really enjoyable yeah. enjoyable. And um, that's translated by John Minford. Okay. And his Penguin Classics version is um, is very good. Wow, I will try and um, link as many of those as I can, actually, mm. probably in the description yeah. of this. So for listeners, keep your eyes out. Um, thank you so much for, for talking to me. I am so, so excited for 2024. <laughs> <laughs> this is quite a wait. <laughs> yeah, the Cautious Traveller's Guide comes out then. Um, so finally, I suppose, what are you working on at the moment? Um, and how can we find out more about you? So you mentioned the um, new Chinese writing centers website uh how we've got a website as well i think 
Um, yes, I think my website is sarahbrookswriting.co.uk um, and there's links to, to my short stories and things on there. And yeah, I'm currently doing doing the edits for the novel. So so that's, as you say, it's going to be published in 2024 with Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Um, so just just sort of working on the last last yeah. bits there. <laughs> um, and then on, on book two as well, which is going to be oh um, another gosh. alternate history. Yes. Wow, so is that going to be set in the same universe or will that be slightly different? Yeah, it will be different. Okay. So there might be a few points of connection, but it will be, be different okay. and, and that's set in, in England this time. Yeah. Wow, that's so exciting. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for chatting to me. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at The Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday. <laughs>